I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Today, the Supreme Court heard arguments in Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue, a case that may have important implications for the future of religious freedom and the First Amendment. Joining us to discuss it are two advocates who've written about and worked on the case and two of America's leading experts on religious freedom. Michael Bindus is a senior attorney with the Institute for Justice, the group representing the petitioners in this case who originally brought the lawsuit. He litigates in courts nationwide to protect freedom of speech, economic liberty, educational choice, and other individual liberties. Michael, it is wonderful to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. I appreciate it. And Alice O'Brien is general counsel at the National Education Association, the nation's largest professional employee organization committed to advancing the cause of public education across the country. She is the author of a SCOTUS blog piece on this case, arguing for deference for state constitutional protections for public education. Alice, it's wonderful to have you with us as well. Thanks so much. I'm delighted to be part of this. Great. Michael, can you please begin by telling us about the facts in the Espinoza case? What is the constitutional dispute here and how did it get up to the U.S. Supreme Court? Sure. Uh, This case concerns a school choice program that the Montana uh, legislature adopted back in 2015. Uh, The Montana legislature recognized, as I think most Americans do, that uh, a one-size-fits-all approach to education is not the right approach. Uh, Children are unique. They have unique educational needs. And parents know best what will meet those needs for their children. And so it adopted a program to empower parents to make the choices concerning their kids' education. Specifically, it was a tax credit scholarship program. Uh, The state offered $150 tax credit to taxpayers uh, to incentivize private donations to nonprofit scholarship organizations, which in turn would use those private donations to award scholarships uh, to children at the K-12 level to use at the private school that their parents believed was best for them. Uh, The program was neutral toward religion, meaning that uh, the program was open to religious and and non-religious schools alike, and it operated on the private choice of parents. Um, It wasn't the government dictating where a scholarship recipient would use the scholarship, but rather the parents making that choice for their child. Unfortunately, shortly after the program was adopted, the Montana Department of Revenue adopted a rule barring religious options from the program. According to the department, the uh, Montana Constitution, specifically a provision uh, commonly known as its Blaine Amendment, prohibited public funding of religious schools, uh, and it therefore adopted a rule barring those options. We challenged that rule on behalf of three Montana families who wanted to use the scholarship, uh, use scholarships under the program at uh, religious schools. And we argued that to apply this Blaine Amendment, the state constitutional provision to bar religious options in the program, ran afoul of the federal constitution, among other things, the provision in the First Amendment protecting the free exercise of religion. We won the case at the trial court, uh, but then the Montana Department of Revenue appealed that decision to the Montana Supreme Court. 
and the Montana Supreme Court reversed the trial court's decision. It agreed with the department that Montana's Blaine Amendment required that religious options be barred from the program. And it further concluded that applying the Blaine Amendment to bar religious options did not present any federal constitutional problem. Uh, obviously, we disagreed. The, the court, in turn, invalidated the program. Uh, obviously, we disagreed with its conclusion on that federal question, so we petitioned the United States Supreme Court for review, and the court agreed to review the case, the federal question of whether uh, the federal constitution allows uh, a state to bar religious options in an otherwise generally available scholarship program. Uh, the court heard argument this morning, and uh, we'll get an opinion in short order. Alice, do you have anything to add about Michael's statement of the facts and the legal issues in this case? So there are a couple of nuances here that are important to understand. Number one, the tax credit program doesn't exist anymore. Um, The Montana Supreme Court decided that rather than tear down the wall between church and state, what they would do instead is just not have the program at all. And the Montana Supreme Court also struck down on adequate and independent grounds the Montana Department of Revenue ruling, um, which had said that religious schools could not participate in the school scholarship program. Um, So it comes up before the court in a different posture than it was presented to the trial court where the Institute for Justice was coming in and challenging the Montana Department of Revenue's rule. That rule is not before the Supreme Court. What is before the Supreme Court is the choice of the state of Montana not to fund any schools, any private schools, including religious schools, through a tuition tax credit program. The Montana legislature has let the program lie. They haven't reenacted it. So it's not the case there's this generally applicable program out there from which religious schools are being excluded. So that's nuance number one, which is important to understand and played a heavy role at argument today. The second nuance that's important to understand is that the money doesn't actually go to the parents. Um, The money goes, it's a one-to-one tax credit. So individuals, when the program was in effect, could get, could basically redirect $150 of their tax liability from the state um, to the school scholarship organizations. And then the school scholarship organizations could award scholarships as they saw fit. and the school scholarships organizations, you know, can still do exactly that. They're just not entitled to this um, tax credit for whatever benefit that was to them. And that nuance is important because the school scholarship organizations are not before the court, nor are the private schools that receive the scholarships from the school scholarship organizations. Rather, three individuals are before the court who may or not, may not be affected by this change in tax treatment under Montana's law. Thank you very much for those two nuances, both noting that the program has been invalidated and and therefore doesn't go to either parents of kids who go to religious or non-religious schools, and also that the money doesn't go to the parents, it goes to the scholarship organizations. Michael, in light of that important nuance, maybe we should start where the Supreme Court did today, which was on the question of standing. And standing is ordinarily a technical question. Dear we the people 
listeners, for remember, for the non-initiated, in order to have standing to hear a case, you have to show a cognizable injury. And here, Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor came right out of the gate saying, where is the injury to individual parents since they're not the ones who get the money. So, Michael, tell us more about this dispute about standing where Justice Ginsburg clashed with Justice Gorsuch about the question of where's the harm and then tell our listeners why you think that there is, in fact, standing to bring this case. Sure. The the beneficiaries of this program are the parents. Um, while uh, the taxpayer is incentivized with a tax credit to contribute to scholarship granting organizations, the scholarship granting organizations must use those funds to award scholarships to families so that families may in turn use them to attend the school of their choice. So there's no question that the beneficiaries of this program are the families themselves. And in fact, the court uh, in a prior decision, Zellman versus Simmons-Harris, made uh, quite clear uh, that it is parents, not schools, or in this case, tax credit organizations that are the beneficiaries of the program. These are all about families. As to the point about the um, the Montana Supreme Court invalidating the program in its entirety. The reason the court invalidated the program is because of religion. Uh, parents in Montana were denied scholarships based on religion. They continue to be denied scholarships based on religion. Uh, the fact that there is collateral damage in the sense that other families have now also lost uh, scholarships doesn't change the fact that this all comes down uh, to religion. Uh, misery may love company, uh, but having company doesn't uh, having company doesn't relieve the misery, and that's certainly true here. Uh, the bottom line is parents were denied these scholarships and continue to be denied scholarships based on religion and religion alone. And we certainly believe that the free exercise clause prohibits government from uh, withholding or denying a benefit on the basis of religion. And Alice, tell us why you believe that the plaintiffs in this case do not have standing. So this case is not like Simmons-Harris. Simmons-Harris is a voucher case where the voucher did go to the parents, was sent to the schools, but it was went to the parents um, for their use in paying tuition at the schools. This is a tax credit which goes to third-party taxpayers that are not before the court um, to incentivize them in a pretty weak way because they actually don't get any financial benefit out of using the tax credit. In fact, um, the Institute for Justice lawyer who was presenting the case today said tax credit taxpayers just got a psychic benefit out of using the tax credit. So presumably that psychic benefit will still be available to them should they decide to contribute to the school scholarship organizations in the future. Um, and the, the three individuals before the court, you know, it's entirely speculative that they will um, continue to receive a scholarship um, given the lack of the tax credit or not receive a scholarship that they otherwise would have received due to the elimination of the tax credit. And the court in a number of cases has been very, very reluctant to find standing, meaning finding that they have the right plaintiff before the court in order to have a concrete case before them when the plaintiff is challenging a change in tax treatment to someone else. So that was the case in the Allen v. Wright case, where students challenged the IRS's refusal to um, 
yank tax-exempt status from schools that were discriminating on racial basis on the ground that the students couldn't show that the, the tax status of those schools had any direct impact on them. And the court reached the same result in eastern Kentucky, where it refused to grant standing to individuals who were being denied medical services in hospitals um, that were supposed to be providing free medical services in order to be entitled to their charitable tax exemption. And the court said, you're clearly, they were clearly the intended beneficiaries of the charitable tax exemption that was being given to the hospital. But notwithstanding that, because they were a challenging tax treatment provided to third parties, the court said, you are not the right parties to bring this case um, and dismiss the case for lack of standing. This is, I know it's very technical, but it consumed the first third of the argument before the Supreme Court, and it's a very significant issue, an obstacle here, I think, for this case to go forward. It is technical, but as you say, it was an important part of the argument, and thank you both for putting the arguments on both sides on the table. Let's now turn to the substance. And in his opening argument on behalf of the petitioners in this case who are challenging their exclusion from the tax credit program, Richard Comer emphasized that two cases were relevant. Uh, one is called Trinity Lutheran and the other is called Zelman. And I want to begin with the Zelman case. Uh, Mr. Comer said, Zelman has already answered the question about who this program is aiding. It's not aiding the schools. It is aiding the parents. Zelman against Simmons-Harris, uh, which we've mentioned, was a 2002 uh, decision of the Supreme Court involving school vouchers. Michael, tell us what Zelman held and why you think that it settles the question in favor of the petitioners in this case. Sure. Uh, Zelman concerned a voucher program uh, for children in um, an inner city school district in Ohio. Uh, and it was challenged by opponents of school choice who claimed that uh, by allowing parents to choose religious schools with their voucher, with their scholarship, it somehow constituted an establishment of religion, a government establishment of religion in violation of the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, we represented families in defending the program. The case went up to the U.S. Supreme Court in 2002. And the court rejected the challenge to the program. Uh, it held that there is no federal constitutional impediment to school choice programs, including school choice programs with religious options, uh, so long as two things are, are, are clear. Number one, the program is neutral with respect to religion, meaning religious and non-religious schools alike are free to participate. And number two, so long as the program operates on private choice, meaning it's parents rather than government deciding what schools their children will attend with their scholarships. So long as those two criteria are satisfied, uh, the court held that there is nothing at all problematic uh, from under the federal constitution with a program like the one in that case. Uh, the Unfortunately, opponents of school choice did not kind of pack up and, and, and call it quits after Zelman. They retrained their focus on state constitutions and specifically uh, the provisions I mentioned earlier known as Blaine Amendments basically arguing that regardless of whether school choice is permissible under the federal constitution, it's impermissible under state constitutional Blaine amendments. And that is what today's case was all about. Alice, Zellman held, as, as Michael suggested, that uh, if benefit is available to 
religious and non-religious schools, and if it's private choices of parents rather than public choices of the government that determines the destination of the funds, then it's neutral with respect to religion and non-religion and therefore is consistent with the First Amendment. Setting aside the Blaine Amendment questions, how is this case different from Zellman and, and why do you disagree with Richard Comer that Zellman settles this case in favor of the plaintiffs? So Zellman was an establishment clause challenge. And the question before the court was, does this establishment clause permit permit a state to make the choice um, to have a voucher program in which religious schools participate? This case is very different than that. Because here, what the petitioners are seeking is a ruling that the federal constitution requires, requires, mandates that a state fund religious schools and that it do so even if it's thrown up its hands and said, as Montana has done here, we're not going to fund religious schools because our state constitutional prohibits it and because we believe there are substantial constitutional problems with having a program that doesn't um, that funds private schools but doesn't fund religious schools. So we're not going to have a program at all. And petitioners would even say that it, that result is mandated by the First Amendment, no matter what concerns a state has, even apart from its state constitutional provisions, as to the nature of the religious education being offered in the schools. There is ample evidence across the country that in many of the religious schools that are funded by voucher programs, discrimination occurs based on gay and lesbian status, based on the religious beliefs of students and their families, based on disability. And a state should be able to make the choice that they are not going to fund religious education for those reasons in order to maintain separation of church and state as set forth in their state constitutional document and because they are concerned about funding religious education that is not subject to the same protections for students that public education is. Michael, what's your response to Alice's point that the difference between this and Zellman is here petitioners are arguing that a state is required to provide a benefit to religious and non-religious school and that any attempt to exclude religious schools would be impermissible. And in the course of your answer, maybe address the constitutional status of these Blaine amendments. They were, they were passed in the 19th century. We the people listeners may remember the campaign slogan, Blaine, Blaine, James G. Blaine, that incorrigible liar from the state of Maine that was during his unsuccessful presidential campaign. He redeemed himself by writing a great two-volume history of Congress uh, between uh, the Civil War and Reconstruction, which you can find online and I really recommend. But uh, he inspired a series of these amendments which were infected by an anti-Catholic bias. Uh, Nevertheless, when Montana repassed its Blaine Amendment in 1972, it had some other non-discriminatory reasons for doing so, some of the ones that Alice mentioned. So, Michael, what's the response to the claim that states shouldn't be required to treat religious and non-religious schools the same? And do you think that the Blaine Amendments are unconstitutional? Uh, To answer your last question first, uh, absolutely. I do believe that they are unconstitutional. But uh, there's there's a lot going on here. First, um, 
we need to make clear that that um, a lot of what Alice had 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 uh, mentioned is premised on the idea that the state is being required to fund religious schools. That's that's not correct for two reasons. Number one. Our argument is not that states must adopt school choice programs, that they are required or constitutionally compelled to adopt school choice programs. Our argument is that if government provides a benefit, as the Montana legislature did, uh, it has to be neutral and even-handed between religious and uh, non-religious options in that benefit program. Uh, The Montana legislature, after all, tried to provide a program that parents could use on a religion neutral basis at a religious or non-religious uh, uh, at a religious or non-religious school. Uh, so again, we're not arguing that government must provide school choice. We're just saying that government must be neutral with respect to religion when it adopts such a program or a, other public benefit programs. And at the end of the day, after all, th- these programs, again, do not fund religious schools. They fund families. No one would argue, uh, for example, that the Pell Grant program or the GI Bill is all about funding um, uh, colleges. It's about funding students so students can secure an education. Um, this is no different. It just happens to occur at the K through 12 level. Now, as to the Blaine Amendment, uh, uh, Jeff, as you mentioned, uh, the Blaine provisions have a very sordid history that are rooted in what Justice Kavanaugh called today grotesque religious bigotry against Catholics. Um, it would take a whole uh, podcast in and of its own to, to provide a, a sufficient overview of the Blaine movement, which again dates back to the mid to 19th centuries. Uh, but make no mistake, these, these provisions were do- designed to do two things. Uh, preserve the overtly religious Protestant nature of the public school system at that time in the, in the 19th century and prevent uh, government funding of so-called sectarian or Catholic schools. Uh, again, it would take a, a, a whole other podcast to go into, into the history. Uh, but uh, as I mentioned, both Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Alito recognize today what exactly is going on with these provisions. And Justice Thomas has written very eloquently about these provisions in the past. Um, so I, I think the court, inc- including, I should mention, Justice Breyer and his Zellman dissent uh, acknowledged uh, uh, point blank that these provisions are relics of, of, of anti-Catholic bigotry. And, and I think the court uh, appreciates that. Uh, and it certainly wasn't lost on the justices today. Dear We the People listeners, in my enthusiasm, I misquoted the Blaine ditty just as I misquoted Iolanthe last week, calling it the House of Lords rather than the House of Peers. Forgive my enthusiasms, but in fact, the chant of Democrats was Blaine, Blaine, James G. Blaine, the continental liar from the state of Maine. And now that we've got that down pat, Alice, I, I must ask, Do you believe the Blaine Amendments are unconstitutional? Uh, If not, why not? And what would the consequences of striking down the Blaine Amendments be? And and does the court need to strike down the Blaine Amendments in order to resolve this case in favor of the plaintiffs? No, (laughs) you won't be surprised that I absolutely do not believe um, the state, and I'm going to call them the state no-aid provisions because I think this effort— to, and I know it's convenient to call every state constitutional provision that was adopted in the 
latter quarter of the 19th century, a Blaine Amendment is completely ahistorical um, and really has nothing to it if you dig beneath the surface. Now, Everybody knows that this country has a long established history dating back before the founders, you know, before the adoption of the U.S. Constitution um, in support of dividing church from state, right? And we know that our founding fathers in this country played a critical role Um the, the very founders who wrote the First Amendment, James Madison and Thomas Jefferson, um, had an experience in Virginia where Virginia adopted a general bill requiring all taxpayers to support religious seminaries. Um, and Madison wrote his famous document protesting um, the bill, and the bill was defeated. And out of that defeat came Thomas Jefferson writing the Bill for Religious Liberty, um, which has a prohibition against compelled support of religion um, and, and provided, you know, the foundation on which the First Amendment, the Free Exercise Clause and the Federal Establishment Clause um, was drafted and created. And Virtually every state constitution in this country either has a prohibition against the compelled support religion of religion or a more direct prohibition against aid to religion. And states have very different constitutional histories as to how they adopted those provisions and how they have come to interpret them over the years. Um, but those state constitutional history, histories can't be reduced to the shorthand that they're all Blaine amendments. And Montana's situation is very much to the point. So Montana has a no-aid provision in its constitution, which was included in 1889 when Montana first entered the Union. Um, and in 1972, Montana had a new constitutional um, convention, and it reconsidered its entire constitution, including heated debate over the no-aid provision. Um, and in that debate, among other people who spoke, a number of religious leaders spoke to the importance of the separation of church and state and the need for the protection of religious organizations to make sure that the government played no part in funding or aiding religion. Um, and on that record, Montana readopted the new no-aid provision with the support of faith leaders across the state, including the Montana Catholic Conference. So it is very apt, as Justice Sotomayor said at argument today, to say you can't really see what else Montana could have done to establish that its no-aid provision is not related in any way to the Blaine Amendment, the failed federal effort by Senator Blaine and his famous ditty, um, but reflects deeply considered views in Montana about the appropriate relationship between church and state, and as well about how Montana should safeguard funding for its public schools. So that state constitutional provision is entitled to deference by the U.S. Supreme Court because states are sovereigns as well in this country. Um, 
And the court has precedent on this, that they will not strike down a state constitutional provision unless there's an irreconcilable conflict between the federal constitution and the state constitution. And there is no irreconcilable conflict here because Montana, based on reasons that have nothing to do with religious animus and everything to do with its no-aid provision and its reluctance um, to get into the quagmire situation of where they are funding only some private school choices and not all private school choices, took down the entire program. And so what petitioners are seeking here is this incredibly sweeping radical result that would force a state that has no program to adopt a program and thereby provide preferential treatment to religious views and religious schools. Michael, one more round on on this question of whether there are reasons to strike down the program that have nothing to do with animus toward religion. Justice Kagan listed several of them. We, the people listeners, can find it on the oral argument transcript. Starting on page 53, she said, you might think the funding religion imposes costs and burdens on religious institutions themselves, that taxpayers have conscientious objections, that religion funding creates divisiveness and conflict within society. And then there was a colloquy that touched on some of the points that Alice raised, including the fact that there's a national tradition back dating back to James Madison not to fund religious activities. And then Justice Alito was uh, speculating about whether or not there might be some no-aid provisions that might stand because they were not infected by anti-Catholic bias. So, so what's your response to the claim that there are non-discriminatory reasons for treating religion differently? And and help us understand how there, there seem to be at least several votes on the court to strike down the Blaine amendments. What would be a way of resolving this case without taking that step? And what would the consequences of striking down those Blaine amendments be? Well, first of all, the court does not need um, to strike down uh, you know, all 37 Blaine amendments to resolve this case. Uh, Justice Alito uh, made clear during the argument today that we're talking about one application of one state's Blaine Amendment uh, to uh, deny parents a, a scholarship program that includes religious options. The court just has to answer whether that application of Montana's Blaine Amendment was constitutional. Um, you know, uh, could the court go further and and speak to to Blaine amendments more uh, more generally? Absolutely. Uh, but is it necessary to resolve this case? No, it's not. Um, as to uh, the history here, there's there's a lot going on. First of all, the 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 the, the Madison bill uh, to which Alice referred was a bill that would have compelled taxpayers to contribute money to Christian ministers. Um, it uh, specifically uh, required them to to pay taxes to uh, for the very purpose of uh, building churches and supporting ministers, specifically Christian. Uh, it had nothing to do with providing a neutral and generally available benefit to students to uh, secure an education. Uh, it's a totally different uh, situation uh, than what we're dealing with here. And, um, you know, as to animus and this notion of, you know, anti-Catholic bigotry and whether uh, the justices on the Montana Supreme Court had some kind of anti-religious animus or, or whether the delegates in 1972 when, when, when the Montana readopted this provision had anti-Catholic animus. 
Look, we think that the the Blaine history is clear, and we think that uh, you know most of the justices on the court recognize that the Blaine history is clear. But you don't need to show animus uh, to win this case. You have to show that there was a benefit denied because of religion. Blaine amendments, no aid provisions, whatever you want to call them. I I, I do take issue with the idea of no aid. Uh, it's no aid to religion. Uh, these provisions don't deny aid to, to public schools. Uh, they specifically prohibit aid to religious schools. Um, but, you know, whatever you want to call them, whatever they're, they're uh, you know, whether you agree that they're rooted in anti-Catholic animus or not, at the end of the day, they have the, the effect in this case of denying an otherwise generally available benefit to certain people because they believe that a religious school is the best best option for their children. Uh, that is discrimination. That is a burden, uh, a harm uh, to one's free exercise. Uh, and regardless of whether you agree or disagree that these are rooted uh, specifically in 19th century anti-Catholic bigotry, at the end of the day, the judgment the court is reviewing here denied a benefit on the basis of religion, and that violates the free exercise clause. Alice, how big a deal would it be if the court were to strike down the state plan amendments, if that's what we're going to call them, and how much would that change the religious liberty landscape? So it would be a remarkable radical result and a real reflection of how far to the right the court has moved with um, the justices appointed by Trump. I mean, this case would not have happened um, without Justice Gorsuch and Kavanaugh on the court. Um, I think that is clear. And it's just, you know, yet another indication of how far this court might go in using the First Amendment to sort of revolutionize um, the jurisprudence of this country. I mean, we're talking about the court, um, what the petitioners want here is the court to sweep aside the constitutions of 37 states um, that reflect fundamental choices in their founding documents as to the relationship between church and state, and to do so in a case that involves education, an area which states historically have had great deference um, to organize their educational systems as they would like, um, and to do so in a case in which there is no generally applicable program before the court, because the Montana Supreme Court, you know, had a choice to make when they decided they needed to enforce the no-aid provision, um, and that choice was they could either level up the program, right, include everybody um, out of concerns, uh, on the federal constitutional score and the state constitutional score or level down the program and eliminate it entirely. And here they eliminated it entirely. There is no general, generally applicable program before the court. Um, so it is an extreme radical result um, that the petitioners are seeking here. Michael, how big a deal do you think it would be if the court strikes down the Blaine Amendments, which you've said you don't think it has to do to resolve this case? As you reminded us, Zellman already allows a state to make benefits available to religious and non-religious schools on equal terms. If the court were to strike down the Blaine Amendments, what would actually change on the ground? 
Well, on the ground, these provisions, these sordid relics of 19th century bigotry would no longer be uh, an impediment to school choice programs, programs that empower parents to make the decisions concerning their children's education in in the other states that have these provisions and interpret them uh, as Mont- the Montana Supreme Court did. Um, the fact of the matter is there are many states uh, in this country that do have uh, school choice programs. Uh, more than half the states have some form of school choice programs up and running, uh, but many do not, and many do not because they have provisions like this, and their state judiciaries have interpreted them and applied them in a way uh, that uh, that discriminates against religious options in, in public benefit programs. If the court rules, as, as we hope it will here, uh, states uh, or school choice opponents will no longer be able to rely on their Blaine amendments uh, to bar programs that include religious options. Uh, you know, a couple of other points that we haven't touched on uh, that really go back to kind of, uh, you know, the history here and, and uh, the notion that these, you know, these provisions might really be trying to accomplish some kind of noble, benign government interest in you know, protecting religion somehow, which is hard to see. Uh, we haven't touched on the fact that just two, two years ago, two terms ago, uh, the court uh, held that Missouri violated the free exercise clause when it relied on its Blaine Amendment to bar a church-run preschool from a playground resurfacing program. Missouri had uh, a program that made grants available to nonprofits and schools to resurface their playgrounds with rubberized material. Uh, and a church-run preschool applied to participate in that program and was denied solely on the ground that it was a church uh, based on its religious status. And the state's justification for that exclusion was its Blaine Amendment. And the state made many of the same arguments uh, that a school choice opponents have made in this case, the Supreme Court rejected them and said, you cannot withhold a otherwise available government benefit solely based on religious status. Uh, We expect the court to apply that case, uh, Trinity Lutheran, uh, and and come to the same conclusion here. In fact, this is a much easier case than Trinity Lutheran because there we were talking about a government grant program that provided aid directly to institutions as such, whereas here we're talking about a government program that provides aid to families who privately and independently decide where to use that aid. And then on the final point I'd make, I, I know Alice has mentioned several times that they're, you know, the, the court somehow leveled down or eliminated the um, the program altogether, and so therefore no one is being discriminated against anymore. Well, um, after the public schools were ordered to integrate um, by the Supreme Court uh, uh, back in uh, the 1950s, uh, Prince Edward County, uh, Virginia, rather than integrate its public school system, shut down its public school system, and then said, Look, we leveled down. There's no discrimination anymore. Uh, the Supreme Court correctly saw through that nonsensical argument and said that you cannot shut down a government program for the sole purpose of preventing a protected class from participating in that program. And so, to the extent you view the Montana Supreme Court 
as somehow leveling down and curing the federal constitutional problem here, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, as as uh, several of the justices in today's argument alluded to, uh, Griffin made clear that that eliminating a public benefit program for the sole purpose of protect of excluding a protected class from that program is unconstitutional. Thank you for mentioning the Trinity Lutheran case, which is the other uh, of the two cases that Richard Comer mentioned in his opening argument for the petitioners. Uh, Mr. Comer began by saying what we're saying here is that Trinity Lutheran says is that the state can't discriminate on the basis of religion. The decision is crystal clear when you read it that that's what they were doing in this case. Justice Kagan had a response to that. She said, I was one of the seven in Trinity Lutheran, but it seems to me there's a real difference in this case. In Trinity Lutheran, a state was using the religious status of various people or entities to limit access to an unrelated public benefit. This is completely different. Here they're saying we don't want to subsidize religious activity, in particular religious education. That's a far cry from Trinity Lutheran. Alice, can you disaggregate and, and help our listeners explain the distinction Justice Kagan was offering and tell us why you believe the case is different than Trinity Lutheran? Sure. So Trinity Lutheran was different on a couple of different scores. Number number one, the the case involved whether or not a church, um, which it was undisputed um, on the record below and before the court, would have received a grant to resurface its playground. You know, it had gone through the process and it was, you know, number five on the list of grant awardees and the program was going to give out more than five grants. So it was undisputed. It was going to get that grant. So entirely unlike the three individuals in this case, that it's completely speculative whether or not they would receive a school scholarship um, or continue to receive one after the Montana Supreme Court took down the program. And the only reason that Missouri gave for not giving the grant was because a church had asked for it. So it was the status of the church um, that had disqualified the church from getting the playground resurfacing grant. And the court said, no, that violates free exercise. The free exercise clause means that when people practice their religion, the government can't um, discriminate against them for doing so. And that was exactly what was at issue in that case. Here, that's not at issue here at all. Um, here, Montana is saying we had a pref we had a tax credit program, a very small tax credit program, um, to encourage giving to these school scholarship organizations. It raises fundamental problems under our state constitution. We're no we're no longer going to have that program. We're out of the business. You know, we have hundreds of years of history in this country of not funding religious education. Um, and here in Montana, we have a 1972 mandate in our constitution not to do so. And so we're going to get out of the business of doing that. Um, so entirely unlike Trinity Lutheran and not decided um, at all by that decision. I also want to circle back just for a minute um, to what Michael has been talking about in terms of framing this case as one which just asks for the government to treat religious schools um, equally. Um, because that really is not 
what the petitioners are seeking here. And it's also not how government treats religion, right? The government is not neutral towards religion in this country. We, because of the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause, we treat religion differently. The same laws do not apply to religious institutions as apply to private institutions. They're not subject to the same taxes. They're not subject to the same civil rights laws. Um, They're not subject to the same labor laws. They are treated differently. And they're treated differently because of the interest in maintaining the separation of church and state in this country. And Montana made a choice based on its state constitution to continue to treat to maintain that distinction um, and not have a program that would result in the government funding religion in an impermissible way. Michael, why do you believe that Trinity Lutheran does, in fact, resolve this case in favor of the petitioners? And help our listeners understand the disagreement within Trinity Lutheran itself. There was a a footnote that uh, Chief Justice Roberts pointedly refused to join that would have swept more broadly than he was ready to go. What, What was going on there? Well, Trinity Lutheran makes clear that you cannot deny a benefit uh, based on religious status, an otherwise available benefit based on religious status. In that case, uh, the benefit was withheld uh, in a program that provided aid directly to institutions as such. If you cannot discriminate on the basis of religion in that type of benefit program, it should be inconceivable that you can discriminate against religion in a program that does not even aid institutions, but rather aids families and allows them to privately and independently decide uh, where to use that aid. At the end of the day, this isn't about um, uh, you know whether or not government can fund religious education. It's about whether government when it provides a benefit to students, whether it's at the K through 12 level, whether it's at the higher ed level, uh, such as with Pell Grants and the GI Bill, whether government has to be neutral with respect to religion when it provides that aid uh, and allow the student, or in this case, the parents, to decide whether to use that aid. I think this is a far easier question um, uh, than Trinity Lutheran presented. And and as to the footnote in Trinity Lutheran, I believe, Jeff, you're referring to footnote three. Um, and it, it, it wasn't Chief Justice Roberts that declined to join that footnote, but rather um, it was Justices Thomas and Gorsuch who declined to join that footnote. And, and what that footnote said is, hey, this program involves uh, uh, playground resurfacing grants. Uh, it doesn't involve uh, religious uses. Uh, I think the, the, the plurality that signed onto this footnote were uh, trying to draw some kind of distinction um, between uh, a benefit that, uh, uh, you know, concerns something that's not inherently religious, maybe. I'm not quite clear what line they were trying to draw, um, uh, as opposed to a program that provides uh, aid that could be put to a religious use. To the extent that there is any kind of distinction between religious status and religious use and denying a benefit on one basis as opposed to the other, um, you know, and, and it's, it, you know, I, I think it's doubtful whether that, that, line can be meaningfully drawn. And and Justices Gorsuch and Thomas uh, specifically noted that that's a difficult line to draw. But to the extent that that line matters, it only matters when the aid is being put to an institutional use. Um, Government may have uh, a more 
uh, significant reason for ensuring that aid that it provides directly to institutions as such um, not be put to particular religious uses. Uh, in that situation, perhaps the government does have uh, a more significant interest. But in this case, again, where the aid is going to individual families who in turn are exercising private and independent choice, that private and independent choice, as the court stressed in Zelman, breaks the link, breaks the chain between church and state, such that any aid that eventually finds its way to a religious school only does so by that private choice and cannot be uh, viewed as uh, a government choice to aid religion or as government funding of religion. Again, the, the, the court stressed that that private choice breaks the link between church and state. And so in that, in that regard, this is a much, much easier case than Trinity Lutheran. Thank you for that. Thank you for correcting me. It was indeed Chief Justice Roberts who wrote footnote three, and the footnote said, this case involves express discrimination based on religious identity with respect to playground resurfacing. We do not address religious uses of funding or other forms of discrimination. And as you say, Justices Thomas and Gorsuch took issues, issue with the footnote saying that uh, it shouldn't be read to suggest that only playground resurfacing cases are governed by the reasoning. Uh, instead, we should have general principles rather than ad hoc improvisations. Alice, what, what's going on here? Uh, Chief Justice Roberts, in the argument today, seemed inclined to side with the petitioners. Was he trying in that footnote to draw a distinction only between direct aid to religion? And might he be persuaded, as Michael suggests, uh, if the aid were directed by private choice and not by the government itself? Or do you think that the narrowing footnote uh, calls his vote into question in this case? So I think Justice Roberts in Trinity um, was driving for a narrow result in that case, and he was just trying to make, by dropping that footnote clear, um, that the court was only reaching the issue of whether or not a state could refuse someone who was otherwise clearly qualified to get the government benefit in question solely because of their religious status. Um that's entirely different than what's at issue here. Because here, number one, there is no government benefit at issue. Um, number two, the tax credit is not being handed out um, based on religious status or not religious status. Um, if to the extent you're using the status versus use distinction, it's clear here that what the Montana Supreme Court was concerned about um, was that the use of the school scholarships um, coming out of the school scholarship organizations um, would be used to fund religious education, would be used for religious purposes. Um, and that squarely does present the issue that the court didn't reach in Trinity and that Justice Chief Justice Roberts set aside in Trinity by dropping that footnote. Well, it's time for closing arguments in this important and illuminating debate about the religious freedom guarantees of the Constitution. And the first one is to you, Michael. Tell us why you believe that the petitioners in the Espinosa case should win and that Montana's tax credit does not violate the Constitution. 
Well, again, there's no question that Montana's tax credit program uh, does not violate the federal constitution. Zellman makes clear that these types of programs are perfectly permissible. And so at the end of the day, what this case comes down to is whether states may nevertheless deny benefits solely on the basis of religion. A lot of the argument uh, during this this podcast, or a lot of the discussion, I should say, um, uh, not argument, um, turned on this notion that somehow um, that denial of a benefit based on religion was was uh, was corrected uh, or or made right when the court, uh, the Montana Supreme Court, struck down the program in its entirety. It, it did nothing of the sort. It did not make the harm right. Uh, the federal constitution trumps the state constitution by virtue of the supremacy clause. The free exercise clause constrains the Blaine Amendment. The Montana Supreme Court did not recognize that. It held that its Blaine Amendment required the exclusion of religious options. Uh, it then concluded that the free exercise clause allows that exclusion, and it proceeded to strike down the entire program uh, on that basis and that basis alone because it determined that under the statute uh, at issue, there was there was no way to sever out the religious from the non-religious um, uh, 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 schools. But the bottom line is a benefit was denied on the basis of religion. A benefit continues to be denied on the basis of religion. And simply uh, you know, pointing to the fact that other families suffered as collateral damage changes none of that. The free exercise clause, as Trinity Lutheran makes clear, does not allow withholding a benefit based on religion. And the answer to the question in this case uh, should be dictated by Trinity Lutheran itself. And Alice, the last word is to you. Why do you believe that the petitioners in the Espinosa case should lose and that a tax credit at issue either violates the federal constitution or striking it down in the name of a no aid provision does not violate the federal constitution? So our public schools remain one of the most powerful institutions in the country for creating a common understanding among each of us of each other and our democratic society. The state of Montana in this case made the judgment based on entirely principled reasons having nothing to do with religious animus, reflected in its 1972 constitutional debate and adoption in that following it of the no aid provision that the state would not fund religious institutions or fund religious education. Based on that judgment, um, the Montana Supreme Court struck down the entire program. The Supreme Court today in argument was quite rightly concerned about inserting itself into this quagmire. They were concerned about whether or not the right plaintiffs were before them, which they were not. Um, and they were concerned as well about this sort of second guess guessing of the Montana Supreme Court and what they had done under their state constitution. I believe that based on the argument and based on the serious questions about the merits of the case before it, the court should dig the case. It should decline the invitation to remove the wall between separation of church and state by reading into the First Amendment a mandate that the government fund private religious schools and a mandate that the First Amendment take down the constitutions of 37 different states. Instead, the court should leave the debate over school voucher and tax credit programs where it should be 
namely with the states, to be resolved based on their state constitutional provisions and through their usual state legislative processes. Thank you so much, Michael Bindus and Alice O'Brien, for an illuminating, civil, and deep discussion of the really important constitutional issues raised by the Espinoza case. Michael, Alice, thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Alice. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. Today's show was engineered by Dave Stotts and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and the Constitutional Content Team. Homework of the week, thank you so much, dear We The People listeners and fellow Gilbert and Sullivan lovers for writing in and giving the correct answer to the lines that followed Chief Justice Rehnquist's famous quotation from Iolanthe. They were, of course, yet Britain set the world ablaze in good King George's glorious days. So many of you wrote in that we ran out of books and had to cap the contest. I'm going to issue another one this week just because it's so great to hear from you and to think of the podcast. So so here's this week's homework, not, not for a book, but just for the pleasure of your feedback. In response to the Democrats' chant, Blaine Blaine, James G. Blaine, the continental liar from the state of Maine, uh, Democrats came up with another slogan. They asked, Ma, Ma, where's my pa? So the homework of the week is, what's the Democrats' famous response to Ma, Ma, Where's My Pa? Write in to jrosen at constitutioncenter.org. Tell me what it was and tell me what you think of We the People. Please also rate, review, or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Do take the time to to rate us and uh, put a comment. It helps drive attendance. And also recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone everywhere who's hungry for a weekly dose of constitutional debate and doggerel as well. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.